The lecture series as a whole, and today in particular, is about this notion of contraction, tzimtzum, a notion which enters the Jewish imagination most prominently um, with the birth of Lurianic Kabbalah, right? the Kabbalah of Isaac Luria in, in Sfat. There are antecedents to uh, his, Kabbalah, his notion of Tzimtzum. Uh, the word itself appears in a suggestive passage of, of the Ramban, of Nachmanides, so a medieval uh, uh, precursor. And there are other Kabbalistic hints towards this notion, but nothing as um, bold nor obvious as uh, Tzimtzum as it appears in the thought of the Ari, uh, uh, Isaac Luria. I say that, except he didn't write anything about it. Um, what, we, what we know about his doctrine comes from his student, Chaim Vital, who wrote the Sefer Eitz Chaim, uh, Tree of Life. And in that book, he outlines supposedly his Rebbe's thought, his Rabbi's thought, including this notion of Tzimtzum. And we're going to read the key passage. It's going to be our only text. This key passage from uh, Eitz Chaim. And what I want to try and do is tease out what might be thought of as the argument. Um, it's not presented as an argument. Uh, it's presented just as a description of the creation. And, and I want to try and tease out what might be thought to be the argument. By the end, we'll get to something that may be or may not be what was originally meant. And that's going to matter less to me, whether I get the original intent correct. I'm interested, is there a good argument in the vicinity of these words? Whether it was really what Chaim Vital meant or, uh, or, or um, the Ari, you'll have to take it up with them. But... Um, the, the text goes as follows. We'll read it along in English. It's on the, on the, on the front of your handout. You should know that before the emanations were emanated, and the, I was thinking about the Baal Shem Tov because we're going to speak about him later. He was seven You should know that before the emanations were emanated and the creations created, a most supreme, simple light filled the whole of existence. There was no vacant place, no aspect of empty space or void, but everything was filled by that simple, infinite light. There's no source material here. We're not told, you know, this isn't according to the Bible, this isn't according to some rabbi, this is just supposed to be obvious, just a fact that somehow he knows. How does he know? I don't know. This light that spread out everywhere, leaving no vacant place, it had no aspect of beginning or end, but was all one pure, completely uniform light. And this is what is called the light of the Ein Sof. The Ein Sof is the Kabbalistic name of God and his transcendence, without end, infinite, the infinite one. Anyway, when it arose in his pure will to create worlds, and to emit emanations, to bring out the perfection of his actions, his names and his attributes, for this was the reason that the worlds were created, 
as we explained in the first inquiry of the first branch, what you're saying there is, at some point in time, God decided to create. And he gives some sort of account of why God decided to create, but that's not our main topic here. But it's something to do with bringing into actuality um, potential names and attributes that, God, that, that would have been fitting for God, but God couldn't have without creating. Something like that. But that's not going to be our um, focus. Anyway, when God made this decision to create, the Ainsoth contracted itself at its midpoint in the exact centre of its light. So you've got this light, infinitely extended, and there's a centre point from which it contracts away. Now, I don't understand what it means for an infinitely extended light to have a centre. You'd think any point could be the centre. It's arbitrary. Um, but that's not the only thing I'm not going to understand this evening. So, so we'll start modestly. Um, anyway, after he contracted that light and withdrew away from that midpoint to the side surrounding it, it left a vacant space. An empty, hollow void. At this point, I've got a little ellipsis, at this point, um, uh, Rav Chaim goes into great length to explain how um, what was left around the centre was a dark circle. And that kind of makes sense visually. We're imagining light receding uniformly in all directions from a central point. And if it's receding uniformly, the shape of the darkness around the central point is going to be circular. Uh, Chaim goes to the trouble of actually drawing the circle, but I didn't think it was necessary. I thought your imaginations would be, would be good enough. Okay. After that contraction... Oh, oh sorry. Uh, is that where we got to? Yeah. After that, the contraction that we described above, the void, vacant... An empty space remained in the exact middle of the light in the, uh, of the light of the Aesop, as mentioned above. As a result, a place was already there for what would be emanated, created, formed and made. So it sounds very much like until this circle of darkness, this empty space, this void, is created by the contraction of the light away from a centre point, before that moment it's not possible for God to create. There needs to be a space in which creation will occur. Yes? Why would the light not contract from the periphery? I have no clue. <laughs> Good question. Okay. Um, and then he says, um, then one straight line extended from the light of the Ainsoth, extending from its circle of light, from above to below, descending and developing into that void. So you have to imagine the light has evacuated a central point, created a dark circle. Now, if we imagine this in three dimensions, we can imagine a dark sphere, right, surrounded by light, and then some, some beam, one straight line, penetrates the, the, the dark um, sphere from the light that, that, extends, uh, that, that surrounds the dark sphere. And there's another diagram that I've elided, which basically has a circle with a line going in it. Okay? But again, I thought you'd, you'd be with me. Okay. <laughs> I mean, 
the geometry of this is the easiest part to get, right? So, like, I don't really need the diagrams, but, okay. The top of, the top of this line extends from the Ainsdorf itself and touches it, but the other extremity, the lower end of this line, does not touch the light of the Ainsdorf. The light of the Ainsdorf extends by way of this line and spreads downwards within that empty place he emanated, created, formed and made all the worlds, every one of them. This line is, a, is, a, is like a single narrow conduit through which the waters of the supernal light of the Ainsdorf spread and are drawn to the worlds that are in the empty space in that void. Okay, so, presumably, before we read Bereshit Baral Aretz and God created the, 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 the heavens and the earth, this thing happened first. Three things, basically. Three stages. Stage one, uh, an infinitely extended light. Stage two, the contraction of that light, creating a sphere or circle of darkness. Stage three, a beam that penetrates from the light into the darkness, something that will function as something like a conduit through which some sort of energy or emanation can flow. And then the creation of worlds occurs. Where? In that place. How? By virtue of that line, that conduit. Yeah. yeah. Um, just a quick question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, once heard this idea that Kabbalah is religious Jews trying to incorporate hermetic thoughts mm-hmm. into their belief system. Is the Greek line as above, so below? Is that like, would that point to that or is that just coincidence? A coincidence of what? Pointing to what in hermetic thought? Would, would, the, would that phrase as above, so below, would that be a hint towards the hermetic influence, or would that just be a linguistic question? I don't know. I'm not sure. It could be. I don't know. Um, as you'll see, this talk is going to be very uh, ahistorical. And, I, and I, I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know the sorts of traditions to which these people are exposed exactly. Right? Uh, what I want to do is say... Can I think of can I can I think of any philosophical theological argument that would lead me to think in this way, uh, uh, preferably one that isn't stupid? <laughs> right. Yes. So when we say or kadash of Ta'il. Is that referring to this way? Well, no, because I mean I think that that um, that phrase predates um, predates this this notion of the infinitely extended light of the Ain Self and the. But certainly, you know, there's this notion of uh, a light that God created at the beginning that was stored away for... for and that's older than the RE, um, that notion. It's not exactly clear to me what the light of the Ainsof is and whether it is just God or whether it's something created by God. Was there a time before this light? Just not clear, okay? Not clear. So, you turn onto the back page... Although the resonance of the ancient rabbinic statement that she quotes yes. is certainly beyond resonant oh, with, absolutely. with what the capitalists absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and the orientation and practice. Yeah, absolutely. After you've read the Ari, it's difficult to, to hear about this new light shining on us without thinking about, without thinking about these things. Okay, so he, go, he goes uh, first attempt. I'm going to suggest all of this talk of, of, of the light that was extended and the need for a contraction and the, 
is a response to a problem, a philosophical problem. And the problem's called the problem of creation. And it goes like this. Oh, by the way, I should say, very much from the outset, that this talk is based on a paper called Divine Contractions, God Gives... Uh, um, Theism Gives Birth to Idealism. Uh, and it's a paper that I'm co-authoring with my uh, friend and partner in crime, Tyron Goldschmidt, who, who is now at uh, Rochester University. Okay. Here's the argument. God is infinite. Hence... He, or his light, and I'm going to smudge over that difference here, because I haven't got a clue what the difference is really. He, or his light, fills all space, because it's infinite. Hence, there is no vacant space in which creation can occur. Hence, the creation cannot occur. But creation does occur. Problem. We know that creation occurs, because we're living in it. God's supposed to be infinite, wouldn't that mean that he fills all space? If he fills all space, then there could be no creation. So what are we going to do? I'll take your question in a second, Moshe. By the way, this is purposefully not a very good argument. <laughs> okay, gonna, we'll, we'll tear it apart and see what's wrong with it in a minute. But the idea would be symptom to the rescue. Right? God must have ceased to be infinite, contracting so as to create the requisite vacant space. And that's what the Ari, that's what the Ari is going on about. That's what Heim's going on about. That's the problem, that's the solution. Moshe? So that assumes that God takes up physical space. Exactly. Okay. That's just silly. I'll, I'll, I'll say more in a minute. Yes. Also, if you subtract from infinity, you still have infinity. That's also true. That's also true. But, yeah. That's also true. Although, um, before Cantor, um, um, mathematical theorizing about infinity was... was um, fraught with complications and people didn't really understand what to do with uh, infinity. Okay, but let me take Moshe's point and run with it. Oh yeah, go on. Yeah, Moshe Cordero slightly before the Yes. Um, and he already has it. He's one of the people who has a precursor to Tim Tsum himself. There's a nice yeah. paper on this in Tarabits, I think. Yeah. yeah, but his philosophical argument, because mm-hmm. he, he did actually like to argue philosophically, mm-hmm. um, is that is that actually it would be it would be to limit the insult, the infinite, to say that there is any realm in which it is not. Good. Okay, but you see, um, let okay, let me say what I think is wrong with the argument as stated. Let's try and, and make it more sophisticated in the way that you've said, and I'll s- still say why I'm not sat- why I'm not satisfied. Okay, so. So, with the argument as stated, it says that because God is infinite, he fills all space. And because he fills all space, there's no space left for creation. Okay? Well, first of all, it's not obvious that something must fill all space because it's infinite. Right? The sequence of natural numbers is infinite. But we can still move. Right? It's not like, you know, I'm sorry, I can't get... I can't get there's just so many numbers around, I just can't <laughs> get... Because they're infinite. Right? No, they, they're not spatially located. They're not the sorts of things that are spatially located. Um, there is this thought, right, and I think this is, this is there in Moshe Cordovero, there is this thought that nothing can be infinite unless it's all-inclusive. Right? To be infinite is to include everything. And with, with 
all due respect, although that phrase is almost always used before you say something horrible about somebody, but with all due respect, it seems to me a confusion to think that infinite and all-inclusive are the same thing. Um, again, um, I am not a natural number, so the natural number sequence does not include me. But that doesn't mean that the natural uh, number sequence is not infinite. It depends on what we really mean by saying that God is infinite, of course. Okay? And, when, and, 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 and to what extent that's similar to saying that the natural number sequence is infinite. It will get you into the nastiness of what being is. Well, indeed. We'll, we'll get there. So, uh, so let's restate the problem with Moshe's worry in mind. And instead of the problem of creation, let's call it the real problem of creation. Except, as you can see, there's going to be the really real problem of creation afterwards, because this one's also going to be problematic. Forget God's being infinite. Being infinite does not mean you fill all space. But there's another property that God is reputed to have, quite classically and normally, and that's omnipresence. Well, omnipresence literally means being all-present, being present everywhere. So then you might think, oh, okay, so if God is that then he fills all space. It's not because it's infinite, it's because he's omnipresent. God is omnipresent, hence he fills all space, hence there's no vacant space in which creation can occur, etc, 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 that's the problem. Simpson to the rescue. God doesn't have to relinquish his infiniteness, whatever that is. He just has to make some space, so he has to relinquish his omnipresence, contracting himself so as to leave some vacant space for creation. That might be what's going on with Simpson. Except it's again a bad argument. For two reasons. First of all, very few people think that omnipresence means literally being located in all places. Okay? You might think that God is neither spatial nor temporal. He, he doesn't really have a location in space and time. He doesn't. What we mean when we say he's omnipresent is that his power extends to all regions of space-time. Or that his knowledge extends to all regions of space-time. Or that in any region of space-time it's possible to have some sort of experience of God. That's what we mean when we say God is omnipresent. We don't really mean he's here. Remember that when my daughter first came across the notion of omnipresence, she was very kind of weirded out by it. What, so God's even in my nostril? Right? Um, um, well, no, he has power over the region in which your nostril is located, but, you know, he's not inside. You don't have to worry that when you sneeze, you're getting him gooey. Um, um, Cordero would say he is your nose. He is, well, indeed, and so will I eventually. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but certainly there's a classical conception of, of omnipresence. Not in the mystical tradition so much, in the rationalistic tradition, by which God isn't located anywhere. The song that we used to sing at Haida when I grew up in Croatia. Um, thank you. Well, England, but I'd rather be Croatian. <laughs> um, when I grew up in England, we, we went to Haida and they taught us the song Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere, right? Up, yeah. up, down, down. Even like, in America. Even in America, you know? Yeah. I'm just saying, my kids growing up in Israel, they won't learn that song, right? But. Um, the, the philosophically accurate song, according to the rationalists, is Hashem's not here, Hashem's not there, Hashem's not spatiotemporally located, right? Not here, not there. You know, and it, um, it's a song that, 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 that quickly disintegrates into atheism, so perhaps we shouldn't. <laughs> but but, but that's, the, that's the 
that's the classical view. Now, if that's your view of omnipresence, right, the real problem of creation isn't the problem. Now, as the gentleman in the back rightly points out, it's unfair of me to lumber these mystical thinkers with a rationalistic conception of omnipresence. No, the mystics thinks God really is everywhere. Yes, he's in your nostril. We'll go further. He, your, your nostrils are part of him in some sense, but, but let's, let's start with just he's in your nostril. Okay? He's everywhere. So even if he's everywhere, literally located everywhere, it's not obvious that his being everywhere means that there's no space in which creation can occur. Because who's to say we can't be co-located with God? Right? Um, some philosophers think that the colour black um, is literally this, the platonic form, this is called immanent universalism, that the, the platonic form of blackness is literally located in the surface of this, this treacherous, what's it called? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's literally there. It shares its location with the rubber. It's not the same thing, right? But it shares its location. Two things can sometimes share a location. Uh, maybe a better example, maybe a worse example, is the statue and the clay from which the statue is made. It's not clear that those two entities are the same entity. Because if, if, uh, there, there are certain things that the statue wouldn't survive, like a knight with a hammer. But the, but the, but the lump of clay would survive that, right? So they're not the same entity. But while the statue exists, it shares its location uh, with the clay. Theory of imminence. Imminent universals. Imminent, imminent universals. Um, there's even a very nice paper by philosopher Chris Hughes who discusses, you know the ship of Theseus where you repair the, sh- the ship bit by bit by bit and then you... But he talks about uh, a very convoluted process by which you have two ships and you're repairing them both but using the parts of each other until he gets to a point where there's only one ship left and it's both of the ships, right? So, like, two ships are in one place. These sorts of things can happen, potentially. (coughs) So just because God is everywhere, he's omnipresent, and you take that literally, it doesn't follow that creation can't occur, because maybe creation can share its location with God. So that's not a great argument either. Please. If we are in God's creation, we have been created in His image, so therefore God is within us, yeah. so He's really everywhere. Yes, He's everywhere. In other words, He's in stone, He's in rock, He's in trees. Yes. Because it's His image that the world was created. Good. So he Himself is there all of Good. So, I think all theologians are going to accept that there's some sense or other in which God is everywhere. You're, you're cashing this out in terms of his image being reflected everywhere. You could cash it out in other ways. But it's not obvious that just because he's located everywhere, that there's no room within space for other things besides him. We can share our location with God. And in fact, we do. You share your location with God. But he created us. Okay. He's with us. Okay, he's with us, but there's different ways in which you can be located somewhere. You know... The beautiful E.E. E. Cummings poem, I carry your heart with me, I carry it in my heart. I say that to my wife before I come to New York, but I actually don't have her heart in my heart. Like, not, like, I mean, not, it's not physically located with me, I hope. Um, and so should you. Um, uh, okay. So, this gets us cl- closer, I think. We're moving closer and closer. 
What I think is, is, is I, I, again, I don't want to make, I'm not a historian, an intellectual historian, I'm a philosopher, so I don't want to make claims that I can't justify, but I want to say that the, 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 problem, the problem I'm arriving at now seems to me to be a real problem that theists really should grapple with, and more than that, it seems like a, a plausible candidate for what's really going on in this very like esoteric piece of writing it's time. Okay? And this, the argument goes like this. At the moment, it's just a sketch, and I'm going to fill it in in the second half of the talk. The sketch goes like this. It's called The Really Real Problem of Creation. Okay? God has a perfection, or a set of perfections, call them or it P. So God has something, P. It could be, I'm not filling it in yet, it could be, omnipre- it could be omnipotence, omnipresence, goodness, love. He has something great that I'm just calling P. And because he has P, there's no logical space for creation. What do I mean by logical space? Sometimes when, when we think about what's possible, we think about the space of possibilities. Okay. Um, some people, following Leibniz, talk about possible worlds, different possible worlds. And we can talk about the space of different possible worlds. Some are nearer to ours because they're more like ours, and some are further away because they're less like ours. In that way, we can think of a space of possibility. Now, God exists in every possible world, classically is thought to, because he's a necessary being. He can't fail to exist. So he exists in every way the world could be. He exists in every possible world. What happens if he has some perfection, some property, some P, that leaves no space in that world, logically, for anything else? Wouldn't that be a problem? And then... Instead of thinking of the light being actually extended in space and there being no actual geometrical room, it all becomes a metaphor. The light is a metaphor for one of God's perfections and the lack of space is a metaphor for the fact that if God has that perfection, it's not possible for there to be anything else. That perfection leaves no room for anything else. And if there was such a problem, then the most obvious solution would be tinsum-like. God would have to contract that perfection, whatever it is. Let's say his goodness, for some reason or other, made it impossible to create a world. And he'd have to become slightly less good if he wants to create a world. Let's say his power makes it impossible to create a world. Then he'd have to become slightly less powerful to make a world. I think we're getting closer to what's really going on. The magic question is, what was it called in America? The 30-something thousand? How many dollars was it? The 30-something the three thousand dollar The thirty thousand dollar question. I'll take I'll take thirty, but sixty four. You know, I'll take. Okay, I'll take whatever's going. But um, um, the really important question is what what is P here, and 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 whatever it is, why does it make it impossible for God to create? So so I'll take some questions, and then I want you to put everything we've said into the background. And we're going to start talking about something completely different. And then we're going to bring it all together at the end, okay? So, I saw you. But what you're, what you're saying sort of implies that God has to be diminished. Which is odd. And in the end, I think that the best school of thought in the Tsim Sum literature 
tries to escape that conclusion. They don't want God to be diminished. But at least the problem suggests uh, that without God diminishing himself, creation can't occur. Yes? And just from what Tom said, I realize that you know, this is a philosophical discussion. Mm-hmm. We're actually thinking and talking about what is this, to my uncle, so to speak, mm-hmm. the substance mm-hmm. of God. That's right. That's, That's right. It's all about just different mm-hmm. theory. Yeah, whatever it is. The substance of God. That's what we're analyzing. Mm-hmm. I think we still might not have a problem with like diminishment because if you have something that's infinite and you take away from it. It's, it's still infinite. infinite. So if God is infinitely yeah. P and yes. gets rid of some, some of, of P, he'll some still be infinitely P. He'll still be yes, but it seems to be that um, he has to become finite. The Timson means he has to become finitely P. Okay. Uh, if he's infinitely P, that's going to be a problem. He has to become finitely P and that's God diminishing himself. Why think these sorts of things? Moshe? Well, doesn't this assume the singularity of P? Well, it turns out that it turns out that God's going to have a whole load of properties. Each one of them is going to make it really difficult for Him to create anything other than Him. And so P could be you could substitute it for a whole load of things. But you can create like a plurality, like, a, like all these different worlds. Uh, yeah. Both simultaneously P. No, 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 no. So God, God has these properties in every world. And in every world it stops him from making anything. So there's no room for God making anything. But can't he make people that are also here? No, because that would be like God making another God. Right? And, and there's a thought that God can't do that, or wouldn't do that, or can't do that. Let's have a look. Okay, forget everything we've said now. Forget we're talking about Sim Sum. Welcome to a new class. Okay? <laughs> this class is called When Barclay Meets the Besht. Okay. The Baal Shem Tov was the founder of Hasidut and he actually lived uh, 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 contemporaneously with Bishop George Barclay who was uh, an, uh, an Irish-English um, philosopher. Barclay, his claim to fame, I suppose, in popular culture although as I get older as a university lecturer my popular culture references progressively become lost on my students, right? But there was the film The Matrix, right? Everyone remembers The Matrix. There were three. There were three. There were three films. It was a. It was a trilogy. The first one was the best, not least because the lead character had to look lost and dazed all the way through. And Keanu Reeves is very good at looking lost and dazed because he probably was a bit. And in, uh, the, film, the second and third, he was supposed to look less lost and dazed, but he still looked equally lost and dazed, and therefore the second and third weren't as good. But the first was great. Okay. Barclay had the following idea. It seems crazy, and I'm not going to defend it uh, directly today, I'm going to defend it kind of indirectly. Barclay's main idea is this. Fundamentally, there's only one type of thing that exists. And it's minds. M-I-N-D-S. Minds. Not brains. Minds. They're more like souls or spirits. You know you've got one. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't be thinking about it. You know you've got one. And he thinks you've got really good reason to think that God's got one too. That there is a God. And what is God? It's an infinitely powerful mind. There's all of our little finite minds, 
And there's God, the infinitely powerful mind. Because he thought that the notion of, a, 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 of an object that isn't thought about, you know, like there's the tree in the forest that nobody hears, does it make a sound? He thought that, the, you know, um, when I got married, my father said, um, it's a little bit non-PC, but it was funny, and it came from my dad, and he said, um, um, if there's a, a Jewish husband in the forest and there's no one around to hear him, is he still wrong? Anyway, Barclay thought that the notion of an object that's not thought about is somewhat incoherent because as soon as you try to think about something that's not thought about, you're thinking about it. See, he has better arguments than that, truth be told, but he thought that, that unthought things are just incomprehensible. So when we talk about matter, you know, atoms and electrons and particles, he thinks, or corpuscules as they were called back then, he, he thought that we didn't really know what we were talking about. We were just speaking hot air. What we are aware of is sensations, thoughts, images, mental stuff. That's what we're aware of. And we posit these atoms and electrons or whatever to explain the regularity of the experiences that we have. But we never actually experience an atom or an electron. We experience experiences. And Barclay says, go ahead. If the, if the atomic theory helps you, fine. But don't think you actually understand what you're talking about. It's just some sort of way of talking that somehow gets the predictions right. All there really is is ideas. But there are two types of ideas. There are the ideas that we know to be ideas because we're directly in control of them. So like if I conjure up an image of a red flower and then at will make it disappear, that was obviously my idea. My, my mind was in control of it. But however much I love you, therefore I wouldn't do this. If I wanted to make you disappear by thinking really hard about you disappearing, I can't. You're just there. Nothing, the only thing I can do is avert my eyes. But if I look, you guys just come rushing into my visual field and there's nothing I can do about it. Which makes it more difficult for me to believe that, that this visual data is coming from me. But if all I can think of is minds and ideas, Barclay said, well, maybe all that visual data is coming from a mind that's much, much stronger than mine. Maybe this computer, this, ta- this lectern, this table, this floor, is being, their ideas being fed into my mind by a mind that's more powerful than mine. The matrix that I'm plugged into. There's just God's mind and our minds. We're all plugged in. And God feeds us all of these experiences. And when we do science, what we're really doing is divine psychology. Because we're figuring out the regular patterns by which God, in, in which God sends or through which God sends out data to us. That's all there is. Minds. Okay, that's Barclay. Our bodies, yeah, our bodies exist in the mind of God. Yes, we don't really have bodies, not fundamentally. Our bodies are just ideas in the mind of God. The only thing that's not an idea in the mind of God, according to Barclay, are our minds. Our minds are plugged in, but our bodies are just ideas. All of the everything that you think is material or physical, just an idea. Where what I call Hasidic idealism which you can see in the Besht, and you can see in many other Hasidic philosophers, I haven't brought any sources here today, 
But I have a, a paper I'd be willing to share with people that they like, where I collate a number of sources. Where Hasidic idealism goes further than Berkeley is the Hasidim think that ultimately, at some level of reality, even our minds are ideas in the mind of God. Do you see the difference? Right? So for Berkeley, our minds are independent of God, plugged in, and our bodies are just ideas in the mind of God. But for Hasidut, at some deep level, even our minds are just ideas in the mind of God. Why think that? Well, I think you have to think that if you're a theist. Why? I'm going to share with you two arguments. And these arguments are going to decisively prove, because we love that in philosophy. You're all going to go home convinced. I'm going to decisively prove to you that if you're a theist, you ultimately have to be a Hasidic idealist. Okay? Have to be. Why? Argument one. Follow along with me on the sheet. God is omnipotent. I'm just assuming that. Hence, God has a most efficacious will. What's an efficacious will? An efficacious will is as soon as God wills for something to be, then it is. God says that there be light, there is. He just has to will it and it will be. Normally we have to will something and then we need to raise the money for it and then we need to, you know, whatever it is and then we need to plan and then we need to, you know, replan and then we need to, okay. Um, God just wills and it is. And that's a consequence of it being omnipotent. Hence, any features of any object are wholly dependent upon God willing it to have those features. Take this bottle, okay? This bottle has a number of features. It has a silver top, it has a certain shape, it has colours here and all sorts of properties. Every single one of those features depends upon God willing it to have those features. Because if right now God willed for this to turn green, guess what? It would, because he's omnipotent. Right? So, so any property that this bottle has depends at least in part upon God willing it to have them. Or at least not willing for it not to have them. Okay. God has then the sort of power over objects that minds typically have over their ideas. Indeed, if all the features of any object wholly depend upon a mind willing it to have those features, then it is an idea in that mind. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I want to lay down a definition. What does it mean to be an idea? Well, there's loads of things you could be to be an idea. Loads of ways to be an idea. We've got lots of different ideas about what ideas are. Loads of ways you could be an idea. But here's something that's clearly an idea. If there's something that has no properties independent of your will, then surely it's one of your ideas. Because it's, it's completely tied up to your willing. Right, surely that's enough to be an idea of, 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 a, of a mind if that mind and no other mind has the power to will at any given time the properties that it has. You might think there are some counterexamples, but they're not. Let me give you one. Okay. Um, I raise my hand. 
Okay? That's an action that was dependent upon my will. Do I want to say that that raising my hand is my idea? Well, no, it's a real event. No, but my raising my hand wasn't wholly dependent upon my willing. There were other things there too, like I needed to have a hand, and I needed to have a nervous system, and I needed to have all, all sorts of things. It wasn't just based on my willing. You might think um, the colours on the paint on the canvas of of the Mona Lisa depended upon the will of Leonardo da Vinci, and therefore it's just an idea in his mind. No. It didn't depend wholly on his will. There was other stuff too. The brush and the paint and the oil and the... But when I conjure up a red flower in my mind, right, all of its properties depend upon me. I can make it yellow at will. I can make it green at will. And, it, and, and nothing else. It's just my mind. Now you might be a physicalist. You might say, no, 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 Sam, that's your brain. And there's loads of stuff going on in your brain. You've got all these neurological circuits and all this. Okay, fine. But if you can imagine a mind that doesn't, ha- doesn't, doesn't need a brain, and if that mind had that sort of power over something, then surely we'd be willing to say that thing is an idea of that mind. It's a software. But it's a software. But the thing is, if God is omnipotent, everything else is the software. Right? Everything is an idea in his mind, including you, including me, including our ideas. We're all just ideas in God's mind. And if you say no, it's because you're an atheist. Go on. No. Um, it sounds like you probably might need to be constrained to be will misconception, because otherwise I have an effect on things as well. And you're not fully dependent on that. Good, good. It violates a privacy constraint you probably think exists for ideas. Good. So, we te- theists also tend to think, they tend to think God is omnipotent, they also tend to think we have free will. Okay? So, uh, God isn't the author of my actions because I am. I have free will. But a couple of things to note, okay? Uh, and I'll go in increasing order of difficulty, so we'll start with the easier thing to know. Okay? Uh, is that even though we have free will, we believe that God has a veto over every action we do. And the only reason, you know, I was able to raise my hand freely was because God didn't veto that. Right, so not not wholly dependent. I I agree, but it's something worth thinking about. A step up, a step up. Once you take seriously the idea that we're ideas in the mind of God, and I take this idea very seriously. Imagine that we're like characters in the story that God's telling. So it's actually true. You know, on one level, we have no free will at all. God authors every action we do. This is why, you know, famously, the Ishbitzer says, the Ishbitzer Rebbe says, "Hakol b'deshamayim, afilu yirashamayim." You know, convert, inverting the phrase of the Talmud that says, "Everything's in the hands of the heavens, except the fear of the heavens." And the Ishbitzer says, "No, everything's in the hands of the heavens, because God is the author of a story." But it's also true that we have free will. The Ishtar knew, knew that. Because, as I said to my class this, this morning, uh, this afternoon, in the story that Shakespeare wrote, it was Hamlet's decision to kill his uncle. And it's false to say that he doesn't have free will. But at some more fundamental level, you're right. He has no free will and we have no free will. We have free will within the story that God's imagining. 
God imagines me, when I just raise my hand, it's because God imagined me freely raising my hand. Okay? Which is like Shakespeare imagining Hamlet freely killing his uncle. Yeah, Mina. Uh, what do you think of, uh, so like, for me personally, the thing that bothers me to reconcile these two is like Maimonides' mm-hmm. uh, explanation with like, uh, two people, like two people in the valley, they're going and, you know, it's the ignorance of what's ahead of you, the mm-hmm. ignorance of the future that creates the illusion of the world, you know, like you can't live your life as if there is a free will because mm-hmm. you, so there's, you, you can live that way. way. You have, yeah, you have no other possible way to live your life. And so you have like this predetermined thing that's going to happen in the future. So like, you have no knowledge of that, so mm-hmm. you might as well not act as if yeah. you do have. Yeah, I mean, this picture kind of wants to go further. He wants to say God's dreaming or storytelling. And I think a number of us see this I think you see this kind of in the Tanya uh, uh, also. God, God's act of creation creates a level of reality in which it's true that we free. It's just that level of reality is less fundamental than the level of reality in which it's true to say we're not free. Mutatis mutandis with Shakespeare and Hamlet. Shakespeare created a world by making this play called Hamlet. And it's true in that world that he created that Hamlet has free will, but, um, but it's also true outside of it that he doesn't. Right? He just does what Shakespeare wrote for him to do. Okay, so that's, that's argument one. Okay? Uh, and what argument one says is, basically, if God is omnipotent, then all objects, but uh, also all people and all minds, everything is an idea in God's mind. Okay? Yeah? What about evil? I've been teaching on the problem of evil all these two weeks. I think, as my students will well know, I think this way of looking at things sheds a really interesting new light on the Gemara Menachot when, when um, Moshe Rabbeinu gets to see the future martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva and he says to God, Zu Torah v'zu and Hashem's reply is shtok, kachala b'machshava so it arose in my mind. Do we blame Tolstoy for the way that Anna Karenina ended? Right? Does that, does that make God evil? Does that make Tolstoy evil? Okay. Um, yes, this view in a sense puts God, puts God on the hook for evil. Because everything that happens God is thinking up. But it also reduces the cost of putting him on the hook. Because from his perspective... Nothing's really very real at all, other than him, from his perspective. Okay. Um, okay. Argument two. We had three in the paper, but I'm going to go easy on you. <laughs> and the third is really wacky. Okay. Argument two. God is as necessarily perfectly rational as he is necessarily omniscient. He knows everything and is completely rational. Hence, he would not do what he knows to be otios. Right? If something was like wasteful, he wouldn't do it. We think he could, but he wouldn't. That would be a kind of like irrationality. And he knows what is otios. Anything he wants to do, he can bring about in a minimal number of steps. And he wouldn't do it, he wouldn't do anything that's otios. So let's go back to Barclay and idealism. It's a bit that's weird. What? what? Futile. 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 Let's go back to 
Let's go back to uh, Barclay's idealism. It's the slightly less weird one. Yeah, our minds all exist. We really, really exist just as much as God does, but we're plugged into his mind. Most people who deny Barclay idealism are at least willing to accept it's possible. They just think it's a bit weird or bizarre or wacky. Bertrand Russell wrote in The Problems of Philosophy in 1912 that Barclay deserves our admiration for having proven that you can be an idealist like this without absurdity. It's just, why would you want to? Something like that. It's it's possible, but come on. But the thing is, Russell, you may or may not know this, little known fact, he wasn't a theist, right? Um, What happens if you are a theist and you believe that idealism is at least possible? Well, I'll tell you what happens. If Barclay and idealism is so much as possible, then God could create a world that appears exactly like ours without creating material objects. How could he do that? By just plugging our minds into a matrix instead of making material objects. He could do that. If so, creating such objects would be otios. There'd be no need to do it. Hence, if Barclean idealism is so much as possible, then God would not create such objects. And since Barclean idealism is possible, God does not create such objects. If you're a theist, you at least have to be a Barclean idealist. Why on earth would God go to the trouble of making some material substratum to, to uh, undergird our experiences of this bottle when he could just give us a bottle in our mind straight away? It would be otios. Okay, there, there are loads of potential weaknesses with this argument and I see um, my friend Moshe uh, uh, scowling. So go on, Moshe. Like, why not? Like, what's the practical difference between if, if, if everything is just ideas yes. and nothing is real, and then everything is just real in, in the idea sense? Good, good. Uh, Barclay, Barclay agrees with you. Barclay thinks, you know, it's not such a radical idea I've got over here, guys. I'm not saying the computer isn't real. I'm not saying the computer doesn't exist. All I'm saying is that what it is is a bundle of of ideas that God puts into our minds when we're in a certain uh, location in his matrix. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying there are no material objects. It just is their ideas. Good. Uh, But then then can't you take that to the extreme and say, like, the matrix matrix is all the way down. Yes. like, there's a matrix theory, and then why does God need to make ideas from the matrix theory? You can just make a, a, like a meta-matrix theory, and then... Well, uh, so at some point they're going to have to be ideas. Don't use the word matrix. They're going to be ideas, right? We're not going to be able to escape from ideas, I think. So, so he, here are some objections you might have. So, first of all, you might think that actually a perfect being can do futile things. Why shouldn't they? You know the story of Buridan's ass? Buridan was one of the early decision theorists, basically. Proto-decision theorists. And he suggested that it's never rational to do something unless you have a sufficient reason for doing that and no other thing. So they made fun of him with the story of Buridan's ass. Buridan's ass was a very, very rational donkey who was walking down the street one day and he got caught equidistantly between two bundles of hay. 
And bundle A and bundle B were equally nutritious, equally wonderful, equally beautiful, so he died of hunger. Because he was so rational, he had no reason to choose A over B, so he died. No, turns out that to be rational sometimes, you have to be able to make arbitrary decisions. To say, I'll choose this for... But you see, in that situation, the donkey has a reason to make an arbitrary decision. He's going to die if he doesn't. Wasn't he hungry? Well, he was hungry, right? So that should have given him a reason to choose one, even though he didn't have a good reason for choosing one over the other. So I accept, if God is placed, so to speak, if a perfectly rational being is placed in a situation where the only rational thing to do is to make an arbitrary decision, then make an arbitrary decision. But that's not the general behaviour of a rational agent, right? It's not generally what rational agents do. And I think that there's something... You know, if God is perfectly elegant, maybe, you might think there's something deeply inelegant about doing a job in 15 steps that could be done in one. Okay? This is another reason why you might think otiosity is uh, incompatible with divinity. Yes? Well, if God likes the story of reward, yes. then, the, then the Kabbalistic notion of tikkun raising sparks yes. in a material world as opposed to very good very good so here's here's a better objection okay it's not otios for God to create a material world because he has some reason for creating us and putting us in a material world one of those reasons might be for example to do a tikkun to repair this fractured world And to repair real fractures is better than repairing imaginary fractures. It makes me think of Robert Nozick's experience machine. Robert Nozick was a philosopher at Harvard who wanted to undermine the utilitarian prejudice that everything we do is ultimately motivated by pleasure and pain. And he tried to undermine it with this thought experiment. Imagine an experience machine Moshe, do you work in computer programming? Someone work? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, you work in computer programming. So Moshe programs a computer for us that we can step into and he can guarantee it will provide us a life of extended pure bliss from now until we die. Would you do it? And many people say no. But then they try and say, oh, but the reason I'd say no is it wouldn't be fair to my friends and my family and my loved ones, and that would be unpleasurable for them, so it's still about pleasure and pain. And Moses says, okay, Moshe will put everybody in the world in. Would we, would we, would we want to do it? It'd just give us all extended bliss forever. It says, no, 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 because it's not as enjoyable to have bliss without the feeling of achievement. But Moshe is a really good computer programmer. So he'll do it such that you have to like complete certain levels in the thing, but you'll have tremendous bliss, but you'll have the feeling of, yeah, but you'll know it's not real because you'll remember going in. No, 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 no. Moshe is a really good computer programmer and he'll make, he'll make you remember saying that you don't want to go in, but he'll give you a life of complete... Do you do, 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 you do it? And Nozick thinks that at least a significant portion of humanity still would say no because they value something about living a real life in the real world. So you might say, well, it wasn't otios for God to create a material world for us to live in, because he knew that we would value real life in a real world. But it's not a great objection. I mean, it's clever and thought-provoking, but I don't think it's 
stands. Because if Barclay's right and the Hasidim are right, then what it means to be a real world is to be thought of by God. You don't get more real than that. It's not, living in God's mind is not like living in an, in an, in an experience machine. In an experience machine, you can take the machine off and go out and live in the real world. If you're an idealist, God's mind is the real world. And you do live a real life in the real world. Okay, you're not quite as real as God, but if, you, if that's what you want from life, to be as real as God, then atheism is probably um, a better option for you. right? Because theism is the view that God is the ground of all being. Yes. How much Perhaps time do you have? This is a, 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 a different counterpoint counter-argument that you would um, entertain. Um, now, you did say that God is arbitrary. You did mention that. Well, no, I, I, said, I said, I think God could sometimes make arbitrary decisions, but only, so to speak, if he has a good reason to. Okay. Yeah. So, well, the difference, again, OTOs would be uh, to create uh, bodies when just create the minds, right? Yes. Why do both? Perhaps, since he is so powerful, mm-hmm. there's no difference to him whether, you know, compared to his, you know, from his, from his infinite storehouse of power, right. there is no difference at all. Good. Um, whether it's, you know, there were material. Like what skin is it of, of God's nose or, or what? Not. Yeah. You um, have. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, but I'm challenging you to speak. You did say something earlier about arbitrary, and I was thinking, no, no, we, we don't think of God that way. We think of God as, you know, Mahu Khan, Abad Khan, and he is a Rahman Khan. We think of him as having all those attributes, so, and that is really part of the rationality. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's arbitrary. Good, so that's good. If he's not arbitrary, he's not arbitrary. if he's not arbitrary, then he's even less likely to do OTO's things. Even though it's no yes. skin off his back, yeah, he's less likely to do it because he's... Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the point. I'm going to take these two questions and then we're going to try and wrap up. Yeah, I didn't know. Uh, so, if the way we experience the world is actually just God imagining it for us. Yes. But not everyone experiences the world the same way. Yes. People don't all see color in the same way, for example. So is God just imagining an infinite version of Bar- Bar- Barclay has... Uh, I'll talk about what Barclay says, then I'll say a little something, and then I'll come back to your question and talk about a more Hasidic approach. What Barclay wants to say about um, color blindness, hallucinations, illusions, uh, optical illusions, is that there are two things, so to speak, that could, so to speak, go wrong here on the Barclay model. could be that God just sends you a slightly different image than he sends me. Right? And that what we call, let's say, what we call, you know, uh, if there's a purely mental apparition, a hallucination, or a, or a, or, or, or schizophrenic episode, um, um, it could be that it's that because God has sent one mind one thing and everybody else something else. Alternatively, it could be that, because remember, for Barclay, there are minds and there there are minds plugged into God's mind. It could be some sort of malfunction, so to speak, of the local mind plugged in, so, so it right. receives something but different. I'm not talking even just about like, malfunction, like yeah. the fact that a small yes. but even just like... I, I think there are small differences just in everyone, the way we see things. Good. Think of a computer programmer who programs a computer game. The program itself contains what the graphic uh, display is going to look like from every single point 
in the, in the world of the game. Right? So God's sending all of that out with all of those subtle differences. Let me carry on for a second. Okay. Um, argument two has taken us to Barclian idealism. But let's strengthen it. Let's say this. For all we know, right, we ourselves could be figments of God's imagination and we wouldn't, it wouldn't feel any different. Now, some people say to me, no, Sam, this is where I get off the boat. And they've been on the boat this far, which is pretty good. They say, no, Sam, this is where I got off the boat. No way am I a figment of imagination. Figments of imagination don't bleed when you, when you prick them. Right? They don't cry when you pinch them. Right? But I do. They do in the movie. But that's the point. They do in the movie. Right? Hamlet thinks in the story called Hamlet... And if he said, I think, therefore I am, he said something true in the story, so we say these things too. Oh, I know I'm real, because I think. Well, yes, you, you are real in this story. Right? That doesn't prove that this reality in which we live isn't itself a story. So, God didn't have to create minds either to create all of these sensations and whatever. Now, the question is, Right. Um, you might think, yes, but God needed to create other people in order to give them his goodness. Or, but hold on a second. It shouldn't be clear to us that God needed to create at all. Right. That shouldn't be clear to us, that he needed to create at all. And if the reason he wants to create is to explore certain ideas, to express certain ideas, to achieve certain names and attributes... And maybe it's enough to do it in thought alone, maybe. Maybe it would be otios not just to create bodies, but to create minds, when all he really has to do is think about a world. That's a little less strong, but let's roll with it for a minute as I wrap up. What you'll notice is that argument one and argument two, they start with divine perfections. Argument one says God is omnipotent. Argument two says God is as necessarily perfectly rational as he is necessarily omniscient. And they both end up with the conclusion that the whole world itself is only really in the mind of God. Let's go back to the really real problem of creation. Let's plug in omnipotent, for example. God is omnipotent. Hence, there is no logical space for a creation beyond his own mind. I've added some words. If God is omnipotent, then given argument one, there's no room in logical space for a creation outside of his own mind, because anything that he creates, he has complete power over, and it's raised an idea in his mind. So if God is omnipotent, there's no logical space for a creation outside of his mind. And now there are two options. Simsum, taken literally. God relinquishes his omnipotence in order to create a world beyond his own mind. Ah, phew. We're not really in God's mind. We really exist, we're real, but just God isn't omnipotent. Well, that seems like a shame to diminish God like that. That's option one. And that view is called simsum kepshutah. Real simsum, literal simsum. A lot of people don't like that because they think that a perfect God wouldn't limit himself. In fact, it's some sort of imperfection to limit yourself. It's like a, a form of cosmic self-harm. Right? God wouldn't do that. It's perfect. So here's the other option. Simtsum shelo kapshuta. Which I think is the, the view that held the, 
the, the strongest sway among the Hasidim. God doesn't create a world beyond his own mind. He merely appears to, because he tells a story. And in the story, he's created a world that's distinct for him. And in the story, all of these people exist and have experiences and have... He's omnipotent. And because he's omnipotent, he can't create a world beyond him. But he can create the appearance of a world beyond him, which is to create the appearance of Tim Sum. The appearance of not being so uh, powerful. Because if he was so powerful, how would we even be here? Well, it's okay, he's created the appearance of not being so powerful. He does that to his goodness as well. He does that to his rationality as well. In order to make space for the appearance of our existing. And it seems like the choice is this, between the two schools of Simsum, and this is where I'll leave it. If you believe in Simsum Mamash, then you believe that God has actually diminished himself in order to create a world. And that's a massive cost, you might think. If you believe in Simsum Shelok Pshuta, then you get accused by people of a cosmism. A cosmism is the view that there is no universe. And that's a type of a heresy. But to be fair, I think that misunderstands Simsum Shalok Pshuta. To say there's no world would be like saying there's no Hamlet. Of course it's a Hamlet. We're talking about him. Shakespeare created him. He's real. He's just not as ultimate as Shakespeare. And he's only a person of flesh and blood within a story. We too are real. God has created us. We're products of his imagination. And more than that, once you, once you see this, then you realise the way in which every single thing is a projection of God in the way that every single thing that occurs in a novel is a projection of the author. And that might make sense of, what, of, of the more panentheistic sounding statements of the Kabbalists. God isn't just in your nostril. He is your nostril. What does that mean? It means that everything is a projection of God. Everything is a projection of God. Um, so it's not that we don't exist. It's that we exist in the mind of God. It's not that we're not real. It's that we're not as real as God. And that's in Sum Shalok Pshuta. And if that's the really real problem of creation, that God's perfection renders it impossible for God to create anything beyond himself, then you go back to this very perplexing tradition of, of, uh, of the Ari, Chayim, of this light that needs to be held back in order for creation to happen in the darkness. Perhaps, and like I said, I'm not really interested in the history, but perhaps that's what's going on there. And even if it's not what's going on there, perhaps it's a philosophical argument inspired by these words that we as theists should take seriously. Okay, so that's that. I'll take questions. We have, we have 15 minutes for questions. Yes? Yes. Yeah, you see, this is where I think like something becomes so rich. What you what you have on this model is you have God outside of the story and God as he's experienced in the story. To extend my heresy further, I often compare God to Kurt Vonnegut. And Kurt Vonnegut compares himself to God a lot as well. So, so, so I'm not alone. How so? Kurt Vonnegut often inserts himself into his own stories. And that creates an interesting dynamic. 
by which there are things which are false about Kurt Vonnegut, but they're true about him in the story. That's a type of tinsum. It's a type of contraction, or a type of hiding, or a type of... Likewise, God, we have philosophical and experiential reasons to believe in his sublime perfection. But as we experience him in the world, he doesn't always doesn't always come across as so sublime or so perfect. The perfect God wouldn't have plans go awry so often. Right? But that's God as he's presenting himself in this story. Imagine a perfect God telling a story about himself in which things went wrong. And all the people sitting around, all the angels sitting around laughing. Is it? You can't do something wrong. You're God. I know, I know, but it's a story. Right? So... It also makes sense of this notion, and I really like this notion, that you see right throughout Kabbalistic, the Zohar is like a a, a, a giant at this, but right throughout the Kabbalistic tradition, of taking the characters in the story of the Chumash as metaphors for some attribute of God. Because it's not just that Abraham and Sarah got married. That did happen. That's historical. But also, God told a story in which the part of him that that Abraham expresses and the part of him that Sarah expresses are brought into relationship. And we can carry this uh, way of this hermeneutic into our life. So, I spoke this morning about the film um, Stranger Than Fiction, in which Will Will Ferrell's character discovers that he's just a character in a novel. And the question that he's asked by his literature teacher is, um, are you in a comedy or a tragedy? Well, Milan Kundera wrote in The Unbearable Lightness of Being that fictional characters are not born of a woman, they're born of a metaphor. He says that when you, dis- when you as an author create a fictional character, you do this to express something, some idea that's been niggling in your head that you want to give voice to. Now, of course, in the story, you know, Teresa, uh, in the story, has a mother. It doesn't mean she wasn't born. She was born in the story. But she's also, at some other level, born of a metaphor, the thing that he wanted to express. Now, now this theology, this Hasidic theology, that comes from one reading of Tzimtzum, a less literal reading of Tzimtzum, the Tzimtzum Shalok Pshutov, it invites us to ask ourselves, what are we metaphors for? Right? And what are, you know, and what are the people around us metaphors for? I was, I'll take you a second, you sir. One morning I was about to teach this very sort of class in South Africa, and I was davening in the shul in Cape Town, and a guy had left his uh, sat-nav on, his GPS on, and his phone. And as I was putting on filling, this voice emanated from his pocket saying, where would you like to go today? <laughs> and I was putting on my twin and I was thinking to myself I have a choice I have a choice and the choice is mine I can relate to that as the freak accident that it was because it was it was just that a guy forgot to put the phone on silent that, I'm not denying that's what it was it was just chance but I'm also living in a story in which everything's saturated with meaning and I can choose uh, to, to view that as 
saturated with religious significance as I'm putting my tefillin on and someone's asking me where do you want to go today? No. Nisa? Um, what's the function of prayer? So, so I think that prayer works on two levels and I think that our religious experience works on two levels. And it goes like this. Sometimes we experience God as he is a character in the book. Kurt Vonnegut walks into a bar in his story and starts talking to one of his characters. God walks into a bush and starts talking to Moses. Okay? We pray to God and he hears us sitting up in his heaven in our story. He answers us sometimes. He answers us always, I think, but you know, it's not always the way we want to be answered. But sometimes we catch a glimpse of a, a more transcendent God. It's not two gods, it's the same God. It's God as he really is. God beyond the image. God beyond the story. And I, I think we can impact him too. I told another story this morning about, and it relates to Kachalab and Machshavah, so it arose in my thoughts. I, told, I said about Tolstoy, do we think so badly about Tolstoy? The story goes that Tolstoy cried when he wrote those things. Right? The real Tolstoy was truly touched by the fictional character in the story and her death. So I think that most often when we experience God and we, and we, and we impact God, we experience and we impact God in the story as a character, as a fellow character with us, just a much more powerful one. But there may be times in our lives where we even impact upon and we touch in some sense uh, God as he is beyond. Uh, in reference to what Danny said in your response about tragedy and comedy, Rashi says on those words, he actually says it in the um, Shira of uh, Azimu, Yes. I've changed my mind. Yes. About Rashi says the following. Yes. Yeah, changed of mind. Ra or Tov. Yeah. Ra to Tov or Tov to Ra. So the way I now understand it is that God injects a force uh-huh. into the story. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, it could be tragedy. Yes. It could be comedy. Yes. The force remains in the story. Uh-huh. And it depends on the direction. Yes. That God decides to put it. Yes. That same force can be used for good yes. or for evil. Although, very bizarrely. But that's what the best thing is. It's not that God changes his mind. mind. But bizarrely, we're, we're characters in this story. And, and he's beyond time, so there are things like. We're characters in this story, we're also the audience. And, um, and that's weird, leads to all sorts of iterated, kind of paradoxical sounding things, because we're the audience because God is imagining us being the audience. But nonetheless, we're, we're the audience. There are some stories where it's not up to the author whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, it's up to the interpreter. Right, so it may well be up to us sometimes what the true significance of the things that happens to us is. I know that was something that mattered a lot to the issue. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I just want to uh, make sure I've got enough time. Uh, ten more minutes, so we'll, uh, we'll take Amanda and then you. I'll, I'll get round. Yeah, Amanda. Um, so my question has to do with um, God's motivations for creating the world. Because I think yeah. some of these accounts allow for the idea that maybe God doesn't almost need like a motivation to create the world and the people in it, whether it's in his mind or it exists 
in a separate reality from his mind. But a lot of these accounts do seem to ascribe to God some sort of desire to create people or to explore his capacities. And my, I've been, I, it's something I've been thinking about a lot because what does it mean for God to want something? Like how I would interpret it is that wanting something implies lacking something. Lacking something. And I don't know what it means for God to lack Not something. Me. I mean, I guess we say that God is omnipotent. Maybe that just means that he's able to create the answers for God's desires, but that reads a little... As far as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, what you're raising here is one of the most trenchant theological riddles, harder even than Simtum, I think, is why did God create a world at all? What was his motive? And there are different views given, and many of them, even in our tradition, are problematic because it's difficult to understand them without thinking of God as somehow in need. It just cuts against something deep in our theology and the way we relate to God. So the Ramchal talks about you know, God's goodness, so to speak, needs recipients. So he has to create recipients. Well, that already sounds a bit needy. I might not be completely fair to the Ramchal, but that's how it appears to me. Um, what I kind of like about Simpson Shalok Pshuto and the way that it treats the world as something going on internally in God, as a thought or a story, is that it transforms the question of why does a God create and subsumes it into a broader question why do storytellers tell stories why do minds explore why do why do thinkers think right? and maybe maybe it really is some, fact, some function of being a perfect perfect person even if you're living in complete ontological solitude alone, that part of what it means to be a perfect person is to express oneself. And, uh, and therefore the world becomes something like God's self-expression. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, I don't think I have an issue with one of the parts of argument two, yeah. where we say if Berkeleyan idealism is possible, then creating actual objects would be odious. Yeah. But it would only be odious for us. It wouldn't be odious for God. It could make a difference to God. Yeah, good. Even though good. we experience it all the same. Good. So, so rational decision theory okay, is really difficult to apply to God. It's so different to us. If there's two ways of me getting from A to B, and one's direct, and one's via a hundred other waypoints and those hundred other waypoints I don't want to go to then it's irrational for me to take that route when I could take the shorter route but you might think that that's because I'm limited in time since I'm limited in time go the shortest route you might think as soon as you talk about God who has no limitations in resources who cares which one he takes he can take the long route, he can take the short route he can take the... it's not even that, it's that uh... um... We're kind of assuming we're kind of assuming that God, even though it would be no skin off his back, we're kind of because he doesn't have a back, nor does he have skin. Okay. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, so two points in response. First point, which isn't related to what you were saying, but is that we are making an assumption here that even though God has unlimited resources, the sort of inelegance that's manifest 
in choosing the long road over the short road is not very divine. But, but, but your second question, I think, is stronger, which is, why assume it's OTA? It's OTA for us because our experience wouldn't be changed, but who's to say that it would be OTA for God? Maybe he's got some vested interest in material objects. So I'm happy to say, just bite another bullet in terms of what I'm assuming in this argument. We're assuming in this argument that God's purposes for creation are bound up only with the experiences of sentient beings. And if that's his purpose, then it would be OTOs for him too, given his purpose to make material objects. Because since he could give those sentient beings all the experiences they needed to have without making atoms and electrons and whatever as, as, as actual things. Yeah, so much of the conversation has been like in relation to the character and the, whoever's the story writer. Yes. As far as character to characters are concerned, I yes. just, my mind is there for a second. I'm just yeah. trying to kind of apply what I'm hearing in the theories and the co-location aspect. Yes. So I'm causing an experience and, and feeling an impact or vice versa, then what's happening? Well, we... I mean, as a, yeah, in, there, in the picture of what we're discussing. Yeah, so there are two things happening at once. Um, there's you freely deciding to do something and you being causally efficacious and you actually making something happen, you receiving experience and actually receiving them. And God watching on lovingly as you do that because he's another character in the story that's one watching thing what? No, no, not writing, just watching on and there's another level of reality in which God is writing a story about God quietly watching on as somebody freely does X, Y and Z that's also true and also happening but they're not happening at the same level of reality now some people come to me and say oh but that bothers me terribly and they'll tell me two reasons why it bothers them first reason is I think we can dismiss quite quickly is that, well, it doesn't make me real or free, I kind of I'm just a figment it makes you as real as anything can be other than God take it, it's good okay the second thing is, yeah but which world should I be more worried about should I be more worried about what's going on down here or should I be more worried about what's going on up there and if I'm more worried about what's going on up there then from that perspective I'm not really free, so what does anything matter but it seems clear to me that most of the time you should be more worried about what's going on down here. And I'll tell you why. Sherlock Holmes lived in London in the 1890s, I think. 1880s. Sherlock Holmes in the stories he lived in London in the 1880s. It doesn't matter a jot to him that in those years, 221B Baker Street didn't exist because Baker Street wasn't long enough. Why didn't it matter a jot? Because in the story there was a 221B Baker Street and he had a key. Right? And if you told him, oh, Sherlock, Sherlock, do you know, in some world that's more fundamental than yours, there are fewer houses on Baker Street. Sherlock's not going to worry about where to sleep tonight. Right? So likewise, when I tell you, do you know that in some world more fundamental than ours, you're not a free agent? That shouldn't worry you. Because what it's rational to worry about day to day is what's true in the world in which we live. And you're a free agent in this world. And God doesn't get involved day to day. He's not writing the story in the story. 
He's writing the story outside of the story. So why is it relevant at all, this high level? Well, I'll tell you why it's relevant at all. Because, one, we don't understand how a perfect being could create a world because of these arguments, and now we do. Oh, there's some other level. Now we don't have to bother about it. Let's get our heads down and get busy working on making this world better. But the other reason it's important is because sometimes, in fleeting moments, we can have those moments where we actually sense the author himself, beyond. And we can impact him, beyond. And why, why is that cool? First of all, it feels amazing. It's a type of a religious experience. And secondly, because if you're able to pull on God's heartstrings up there, like God as he is outside, things will change for you down here. Which is why when, when uh, Kilgore Trout meets Kurt Vonnegut, and Kurt Vonnegut says, you're just a fictional character, Kilgore Trout says, make me young. He doesn't say make me the main character, he doesn't say make me funny, make me poetic, make me relevant, make me the sorts of things that would make a, a character a good character. The relevance for Trout in finding out that, wow, there's a transcendent realm in which there's some being putting the strings, is that, oh, that can make things better for me. Down here, as a human being, not a fictional character on Earth. I'll take one last question and I'll finish. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard, it's, it's actually hard to overestimate how much the, the early Hasidic masters, including the author of Tanya, yes. made of this, of this higher perspective. That's right. And how much they emphasized it in terms of a desiderato yeah. on which people should focus and realize. Yes. And um, in answer to the question of prayer, I mean, that was really their main emphasis of prayer was it was on the upper unity, not the lower unity. Yeah, but you see, I think it's really confusing because it's the upper unity as perceived from down here. Right? Because cause the, tan- the Balatanya is very clear that as perceived from up there, we Enod Milvadol Mamash, like there's nothing down here. So I sometimes think that even when the Hasidic masters talk about us unifying the higher God, that's also kind of something that goes on within the story. It's complicated. It's complicated. But what I do think is true is I think that Hasidic... Has You're talking about an as-if that makes itself a vessel right. for reception of that mind itself. I understand. Hasidut, just to wrap up, Hasidut, I think, often gets mislabeled. It gets labeled as acosmic, so there's no universe at all. It gets labeled as panentheistic, which might be true in a sense, but sometimes that means... We are literally a part of God, like a physical, like a physical part. We're the body, he's the soul type of thing. No. What's really going on, I think, is a type of idealism in which the world really exists, but, but it's not, from God's perspective, what it is from ours. From God's perspective, it's nothing more than an idea. But from our perspective, it's a real place in which people of flesh and blood walk around. And I think that if you go back to some of these specific texts, the Balatanya, the Ishbitzer, of Tzadok, the Baal Tov himself, in, in a number of the, especially the number of the stories uh, said about him, that this, um, this reading <coughs> makes sense of it. And whether or not it's a faithful understanding of what was going on in Etz Chaim, which loads of people debate, and some people want a more literal interpretation of Timson Mamash, the Litvaks, the Litvak Kabbalists take a more literal reading of Timson. Um, whether or not it's, it's really in the text, it's certainly suggested by the text 
that we started with today with uh, that expansive light. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>